Well, welcome. Glad you guys are back for the next installment of our study of the book of the letter that was written to the Christians in the city of Thessalonica in about 50 AD. So let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna jump right in. This is a really interesting topic tonight. Lord, thank you for the blessings you've given us. I'm grateful that we live in the country in which we live, grateful for the freedoms that we have, and I pray that you would preserve them. I pray for our leaders, that you would turn their hearts and their minds toward you. I pray for everyone in our audience, that Lord, you would be near us in our times of need, that you would hear our praises in our times of joy, and that we might give thanks to you as often as we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's the number for questions. It's on your handout. It's also on the online handout. So text questions during class if you would like. We are looking at the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to early Christians in a town, Thessalonica. Thessalonica is in the northern part of Greece, actually Macedonia at that time. And it was a large city, very commercial city, very pagan city, not a lot of Jews in Thessalonica. And so Paul goes through there in about 49 to 52 AD. So I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. So if you assume the resurrection happened in 33 AD, this is 16 years later and Christianity is spreading all around the known world. And so you can see the account in the book of Acts. The book of Acts kind of gives you an account of the early church and in Acts 17, it tells you what happened when Paul went to Thessalonica. And he reasoned there for three weeks with the Jews. Some believed, some didn't, but many of the non-Jews, the Jews called them Gentiles, we'll call them Greeks, but they, were, they believed. And so some of the Jews were jealous, they stirred up a mob, and they literally ran Paul out of town. So Paul went on and he was a little worried about the Christians there because they were suffering some uh, persecution in the sense of, uh, you know, they, they didn't like it that these Jews or Gentiles had decided to follow Christ. Why? Because apparently the preaching of Christ was turning uh, the, the world upside down, it was their accusation. In other words, this is just people are believing this and it's changing their lives. It's affecting the commercial, the, the economy of the state. People don't gamble like they used to. They don't worship idols like they used to. I mean, what a story that coming to Christ has radically changed people's lives so much so that they're protesting because you're hurting their pocketbook. So Paul left Thessalonica and he went to Athens. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. It kind of details his journey, but he was very concerned. And so he sent Timothy, who was a young man that was with him, back to Thessalonica and said, go find out how they're doing. In the meantime, after preaching in Athens, he went to Corinth and he stayed in Corinth about 18 months. That was a huge city. And he did a lot of ministry there. And so Timothy came and found Paul when he was in Corinth, having come back from Thessalonica. And that was the occasion for Paul to write this letter, the first of two that we have. So we call it 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. There's two letters that we have. And when he did, you can see that in the first three chapters, and again, we put the chapter divisions in, Paul didn't. He's grateful. He said, Timothy has come 
and found me, he brought good news of your faith and your love, that you remember us kindly. And he uh, just praises God that they've been faithful even in the midst of persecution. So that's what we talked about in our last lesson. Paul then in the letter turns and he moves from what's really a narrative. Chapters one, two, and three, he's just saying, you remember what it was like when I came, you remember what I told you, I'm concerned about the persecution, hold fast to the faith. Uh, Timothy came and told me that you're doing great, uh, you're suffering, but you're holding on to the faith. And so he wrote the letter. And then he turns and he begins to give them some instructions. So chapters one, two, three, the way we've divided the letter, are narrative, and then chapters four and five are instructions. Needless to say, he wasn't there long enough to tell them everything, and when Timothy came back, apparently he not only said, hey Paul, they're, they're really doing well, they're holding up under the persecution, they're meeting together, they're praying, they're, uh, they're loving one another, they're, they're kind to one another, they're doing, they're, you know, they're following Christ but they have some questions, some things that they're a little concerned about that you didn't have time to tell them. And so, in chapters four and five, Paul's gonna answer probably some questions that they sent back with Timothy. And so as chapter four opens, he begins by establishing the authority for his answers. And you'll see Paul do this quite a bit in his letters. Remind them that what I'm about to tell you isn't just Paul's opinion. It isn't just, oh, Paul thinks you ought to live your life this way. What does he say? He says, finally then, that's just a rhetorical device to say I'm changing the subject. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord. That's kind of a euphemism for here are the things that the Lord wants you to do. Here are the answers from God to your questions. In the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, how you ought to walk it, and this isn't just Christian in those days, it was just a way of speaking to say your conduct, your way of life, your walk. You're gonna see that all over the New Testament because, and actually in other Greek literature as well, your walk in life, your conduct, your practice of your life. So what he's saying is, is you receive from us how you ought to live to please God, and you're doing that, but I urge you to do it more and more. And look, look at this, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And this is important because there's several things Paul's not basing these instructions on. Number one, he's not basing these instructions on the fact that I'm an apostle, you're not, so you need to do what I said. That's, that's not the basis for this. His basis is, this is what God has told me to tell you. Just like in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. In other words, Paul's not giving an opinion, he's passing on instructions from God. It doesn't have anything to do with his position. It's not like, hey, I was elected Pope, so I'm gonna tell you what to do. Or Paul is an elder in the church. He's more mature as a Christian, even though that might be really useful to listen to people that are more mature, and in fact you should, nevertheless, it doesn't, that's not the reason for the authoritative teaching. Hopefully more mature people are teaching less mature Christians what God says to do. Make sense? So in modern times, one of the things you start to see is if you think about, a lot of people today are looking for what's the best way to live your life? 
And one of the sources of authority is what I'd call human wisdom. And there's some really smart people out there. You can read books like, here's how Steve Jobs lived his life. Uh, here's how Eckhart Tolle is gonna tell you the best way to live your life. And there are a lot of people out there that will give you human wisdom about how to live your life. Marcus Aurelius will teach you how to be a stoic and that's gonna give you a fulfilled, happy life. A lot of people base their advice on wisdom, intelligence, and you just go to the self-help section and everybody in that section, you go on social media and there are millions of people that would love to tell you how to live your life. So, but Paul doesn't base it on that. He doesn't say, I'm smarter than you are. And by the way, in our culture, and really Western culture in general, there's kind of this movement toward uh, elitism. And that is that there are a few really smart people in the society that need to rule the rest of us so they can show us ignorant people how best to live. That's not new. That's been around a long time in uh, government circles, but that's not what Paul says either. He doesn't say, you guys just aren't as smart as I am, so I'm gonna tell you how to live so you'll have a good life. That's not what he's doing either. I'll tell you one that's really popular today is the idea of a therapeutic gospel. Here's something Paul's not saying. He's not saying these instructions I'm about to give you, you need to follow them because your life will go better. For example, you need to forgive people. And the reason you need to forgive people is it's just a burden that you are carrying around and that grudge is gonna make you unhappy. Now that may be true, I'm not telling you it's untrue, but that's not the basis for Paul's authority. He's not gonna say, you need to do this because your life will go better. Because you know what? It won't always go better. If you do things Jesus' way, you're doing things the right way. You're doing things God's way. You will please God, but you won't always have an easier life. I just want to remind you of a very important Christian person named Jesus who really did this well, and they were not nice to him. They won't be nice to you either. Does that make sense? So the basis for these instructions is not, hey, if you do this, your life will be way happier. The basis for these instructions is this is what God asks of us. But this idea of a therapeutic gospel, that's just what it's called. It basically says you should do what Jesus said because you'll just be better off. Your life will be better. You'll be happier. It's called, it's got a name. In uh, about 10, 12 years ago, a guy named Christian Smith surveyed American teenagers. And he wanted to know, I think the name of the book, hang on, I wrote it down, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Christian Smith's a sociologist, and he did this big survey. And he said to Christian teenagers, he said, what do you believe about God? And the answers that he got, he labeled this philosophy, it's not, the gospel, it's not what Paul's gonna teach. He labeled it moralistic, therapeutic deism. He said, when you listen to Christian teens who've now grown up to be Christian adults, that their fundamental beliefs about God could be called moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here is what, here are the key tenets to that. This is what they believe. Number one, 
God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, just like the Bible teaches and other world religions teach too. This is the moralistic portion of that. You should do what Jesus says because it will help you be nicer and kinder to other people and the world will be a better place. And that's what God really wants, is he wants you to treat other people well. That's not untrue. God does want you to treat other people well. But the point of this is that it is moralistic. It's not, you should do this because it's true. You should do this because this is a life that is pleasing to God. Or you should do this because the Christ who died for you said, follow me and become like me. No, the reason is, God wants you to be a nice person. Second thought was the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. These are the survey results that came back is from Christian teens. And, and I understand that this is the therapeutic part of it. So the moralistic part is God actually, what does God really want from me? He just wants you to be nice to people. Second part is therapeutic. And that is the goal of life is to be happy. And Jesus is here to make you happy. And so if you do things Jesus' way, that should make you happy. And that's what we call Christianity. So that's the therapeutic part, gonna fix your problems. Jesus is the great therapist. Third, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when you need God to resolve a problem. This is the deistic part. Deism is the belief in a God but kind of a God who wound the world up and set it in motion and then kicked back and said, good luck kids. And so the idea here is that look, God is not hanging around telling you thou shalt and thou shalt not. He's just there if you need him. I call this not deism, I call this the fairy godmother God. And so you basically, oh my goodness, fairy godmother, come wave your wand, fix my problems. So I'm not trying to be uh, facetious, but this, these are the survey results. And so the idea, you can see why it's gonna be a little difficult for Christian teens, now Christian adults, to think of the Bible as authoritative. But that's what Paul thought. Remember, Paul said, this is what God said, and this is how to live a life pleasing to God. He didn't say, God just wants you to be nice, God just wants you to be happy, and by the way, God is not gonna bug you unless you need him, and then give him a call, he'll be happy to show up, uh, just kind of like, Uber Eats or Good Eats, you know. And then finally, good people go to heaven when they die. These were the four essential ideas that Christian teens statistically had, and it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Great quote from Kenda Dean, who also did some research into this. The problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that we are doing an extremely good job of teaching young people what we really believe. Namely, Christianity's not a big deal, God doesn't require very much, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. Now, why am I talking about this here? Not because I'm on a rant or I just you know, have a burr under my saddle about this. I simply wanna say that the Bible doesn't base its authority on any of these things that we're, God says this so you'll be nice to each other and the world will be a better place. That's not why, oh, we'd love for you to be nice to each other, but that's not the main point. It doesn't say that God's goal is to make you happy, 
that that's all he's there for and that he's there for you 24-7 anytime you want to call, but he really just has no claim on your life. That's not the basis of what the Bible actually says about God. And so for any real understanding of the rest of the book of Thessalonians or anything in the New Testament, one has to realize that what Paul is saying here is that these instructions came from God and this is how you ought to conduct your lives in order to please God. Will some of those things lead to these? Potentially, sure. But that's not the motivation. And so God is the source of authority and Paul is communicating that source of authority. That comes in a little bit handy for you and me at times when we're called to weigh in, usually on a contentious social issue of one kind or another. And it's really helpful to remember that we need to speak truth, but it's not our truth. Thus says Terry, and Terry will judge you at the end of time. We are messengers to bring a word from God. God says this is the way to conduct our lives to please him. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that because if we're not careful, sometimes it comes across as judgmental, and I wanna make a distinction. Judgmental, when people say that, usually mean you think you're the authority and you're telling me how to live my life. Well, we don't agree with that. We don't think we are the authority and we don't think we're forcing you to live your life that way, but we do think we're gonna say, my God says that the only way to a true full life is to live your life the way he says, to follow Jesus Christ, to surrender your life to him. Yeah, we do believe that. But that's different than saying, I'm the authority, you need to live your life the way I say. And I think that's good for us to remember. So the first thing Paul does here in many places is establishes the reason for why these things I'm telling you are authoritative. They're authoritative because they come from God. The rest of this little section, and this is all I wanna cover, is this part, I'll read it, and then I wanna home in on one key idea here. For this is the will of God. Now that's interesting. A lot of people wonder, what is the will of God for my life? Well, the number one thing here is, he said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I will come back to that. I wanna spend some time talking about that. That you abstain from sexual immorality, these are, he's answering some questions from Thessalonians. That each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness. This is what I really wanna talk about. This idea of holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Notice how many times that's showing up in here. Therefore, whoever disregards this doesn't disregard man, it's not my rule, but you disregard God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So I wanna home in a little bit on this idea of sanctification and holiness. And what is this, because if that's God's will for our life, fair question to say, what in the world is holiness? And I wanna talk about that for a minute. But first, in English, I'm gonna talk about sanctification, holiness, and one other word. In English, these are three different words. Holiness is the state of being a holy person or the state of being holy. Sanctification, that's a noun. Sanctify, that's the verb, is the process of being holy, like living out a holy life. 
sanctification. And a saint, in English, we use that to mean a saint is a holy person. What I want to point out to you is in the Greek language that we translate into English, those are all the same word. I know there are three words in English, but they're the same thing. So when you see sanctification, that sounds like a big Christian-y kind of word. It's not, it was used in other contexts, but it does to us. What is sanctification? It is, you could translate that word, just isn't very good English, is being holy. What is God's will for you? Being holy. And so holiness, sanctification, and a saint, all the same word. And so a saint is a holy person. Holiness is living in the way God wants, and I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. And sanctifying is that lifestyle. Does that make sense? So in English, there are different words, but really all it's talking about is the same fundamental idea of being holy. So what is holiness? Holiness has two components in the New Testament, actually in all the Bible. There are two pieces of this idea of being holy. The first is an identity element. And I'll show you this in some scripture later, but the idea of being holiness is a state of being. For example, a saint is a holy person. In the Catholic Church, a saint is somebody that's met certain standards and they're a lot holier than you and me, right? They're just better people in some way. That's not the way the New Testament uses that word. In the New Testament, all believers, all followers of Christ are called saints. Paul will say, uh, Paul and Timothy, to the saints in the city of Philippi. What does the word saints mean? It literally, you could translate it literally and say to the holy people. So all believers are saints. You're holy people. It's an identity issue. And the holiness means as an identity to be completely dedicated to the service of God, to be set apart for God's specific purpose or mission. So think about it from the Old Testament, what you might know about the Jews. The Jews were God's holy people, God's chosen people. Were they better than other people? No, they weren't. In fact, God says in the Old Testament, I did not choose you because you were better than anyone else. I set you apart and gave you a specific mission that I wanted you to accomplish. That's called a holy identity. You have been set apart for a particular mission from God. Another way you see this in the Old Testament is you know some characters in the Old Testament that took a Nazarite vow. Think Samson. What you do is you set this child apart when they're born and you say, you're gonna be a Nazarite. I'm never gonna cut your hair. You're never gonna uh, have grape juice or wine. You're never gonna be around dead bodies. In other words, you're specially set apart and you're gonna conduct your life differently than everybody else. Being a Nazarite was a, a way to be set apart. It was a holy calling. And so the identity of holiness you being a holy person, what that means first and foremost is you've been set apart, you've been plucked out, and God said, I've chosen you and I've given you a mission. What's the mission that you've been given? Think about what did Jesus say to his disciples and to us before he left. He said, I want you to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, 
teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, not what you think is a good idea, everything I have commanded you, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call it the Great Commission, or the Great Mission, or Mission Impossible. No, it's not Mission Impossible. But you get the idea, is you and I have been set apart to be about God's business in this world. That's an identity. When you read in the New Testament, it talks about the idea that you, in 1 Peter, he says you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Talking to Christians, you are a set apart group of people, you become royal priests, and you've been saved by Christ, and now you have a mission from God. So it's an identity issue. When we talk about having an identity in Christ, as opposed to an identity as, oh, I am this or I am that or whatever. Christians have an identity in Christ. This is that identity. I am completely dedicated to the work of God in this world because I used to live my life and I turned away from that and I surrendered it to him. Remember what Paul said? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What's he saying? He said, I used to be about my business in the world, but now I am 100% dedicated to Jesus Christ's business in the world. So I'm throwing these verses in because I want you to realize when you read your New Testament, which hopefully you're doing a little bit every day, you're gonna see this idea. So holiness is first of all an identity. It's who you are. Secondly, it's then consequently how you're going to live. You cannot be holy if you say, I'm gonna live a really good life. I'm not gonna surrender my life to Christ, but I can live as good a life as you Christians. That is true. My neighbor may live a better conduct life than I have, but they are not holy because holiness is first and foremost a complete and total set-apartness and dedication. The conduct is a consequence of that. If you are following Christ, you want to be like Christ. In fact, that's your destiny. In Romans 8:28, one of our favorite verses, in all circumstances, God works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You are being turned into an image of Jesus Christ. You talk like Christ, you forgive like Christ, you love like Christ, that's who we are becoming. We're becoming Christ. That is the conduct part of holiness. We want to be like Christ. Here's a beautiful passage in Ephesians. This is Paul writing a letter to the Christians in Ephesus, another town. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, command you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what's he saying? To live in a manner worthy of your father. To live in a manner worthy of the one who called you, Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? You're set apart and be holy now. Go act like Jesus acted. So there's two pieces to it, and you need to keep them in order. The first is an identity, and the second is the conduct that flows out of that identity. Why does Paul start with this? Because what he's gonna talk about now when he gives these instructions, he wants them to know, why am I giving you these instructions? These instructions aren't just a big list of rules. Do this, don't do that, 
uh, Christians do this and you should do that. First of all, he's telling you what God wants us to do to live a pleasing life, and now he's gonna tell us why. Because we are holy, and holy people set apart for God live like God. And so he sets this, the idea that God's character governs our behavior, not societal norms. And that's why when you're set apart in your identity, you will look different. You don't have to try to look different. As you try to become like Christ, you will look different. So holiness is an essential characteristic of God. So I wanna give you some passages simply to kind of survey it because I want you to know that you, now you know what holiness is. Why does God care that you be set apart? Why does he care that you be holy? Because that's who God is. Here's uh, Leviticus, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. Why? Because I am holy and you are my children. You will be like your father. I'm holy, you're gonna be holy. He says to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you will be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, consecrate yourselves, meaning separate yourselves. Therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes, my commandments, and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm gonna translate it literally. I am the Lord who makes you holy. I set you apart. I gave you a new identity. I gave you a new name. That's making us holy. You picked us. I'll quote some more scripture for you. Ephesians chapter one. God chose you before the foundation of the world in Jesus Christ, why? To be holy and blameless before him. He chose you before you were ever born and set you apart and gave you this mission. I think if Christians, if you realize as Christ followers who you really are, you would really be in awe. All of our self-esteem problems would vanish. This is who you are because that's who God says you are. He says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's not, I acted good enough and so now I get to be called a saint or I'm holy. No, God made you holy. Uh, you shall be holy to me, set apart for me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from all the other peoples. That's still true. So you are mine. Do you love this language? You should love this language. I mean, this is like, wow, I didn't realize I was that cool. You know, I didn't realize that's who I was. That's who you are. Now, therefore, this is Exodus. God says to the people of Israel, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples because all the earth is mine and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. He's telling Moses, you go tell them who they are. I chose them. They're special, they're holy, they're set apart. And that's exactly what Jesus did with us. One more, uh, people argue, theologians argue about what is of all the characteristics of God. He's, he's all powerful, he's all knowing, uh, God is love. God is the way, God is truth, God is life. God has all these characteristics. What's the first or the foremost characteristic of God? 
And so Calvinists by and large, and again, they're just saying, as I read the scripture, they say, it looks to me like God's kingship, his sovereignty, his power, all the earth is God's. He made this universe. That seems to me to be his biggest characteristic, is his sovereignty. Wesley reads the scriptures and he said, no, I don't, he is sovereign, but I think love is God's biggest characteristic. You can really make an argument, in fact, I am gonna make that argument, that holiness might be God's greatest characteristic. Actually, I don't care. He is all of those things, but I don't want you to forget holiness. One thing I need to tell you about the Hebrew language is there are no comparative adjectives in the Hebrew language. Like we have good, better, best. Great, greater, greatest. Those are called comparative adjectives. Like you're great, he's greater, she's the greatest. They don't have that. So you know how they say greatest, best, mostest? Is they repeat a word three times. And this is the only word, to my knowledge, that's ever described to God repeated three times. This is Isaiah. He said, uh, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, he had a vision, of God sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And above him stood these angels. They were wild. They had six wings, covered their eyes, covered their feet, and flew. And the angels were yelling to one another. They were singing to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so it goes on to talk about his reaction. But the idea of God being so other than us, so pure, so different, is one of the defining characteristics of God. He's not like a Greek or a Roman God. You know, Greek and Roman gods, and by the way, a lot of gods today uh, that people have today are person, you know, like superhuman beings. If you think about Zeus, he was basically not a very nice human being who just had tons of power, right? And if you think about Aphrodite, she was just a girl with loose morals, but she lived on Mount Olympus. You know, in other words, their gods were just superhuman beings. God is not like that at all. He is so other, so set apart, and he has called us to be set apart just as he is. Holiness is an essential characteristic of God, and holiness is necessary for living the Christian life. Holiness is essential. It's not just something you've been given, that's true. You're holy because God said that's your new identity. I have adopted you into the family, I'm using all these metaphors that the Bible uses. I just want you to see how the Bible talks about it. You're adopted into the family. You've gone from death to life. You've been rescued or saved. You now have eternal life. You are my holy people. You are my holy uh, children. Here's a great passage in Romans 6. He says, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin, you used to live your lives focused on something that's not God. You have become obedient from the heart to the teaching which you were committed. In other words, you've turned, repented. We call it repenting when you change your mind and say, I'm going another direction. You have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, you are completely belong to God. You are completely dedicated to God. That's a good thing. 
being completely dedicated to sin, the devil does not love you. The devil wants to destroy you. God loves you, works all things for good for you, has called you out. If you want to serve someone, serve God. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting? The end of that kind of conduct is death. But now you've been set free and you become slaves of God. You, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification, being holy. And what happens at the end of sanctification? Eternal life with God. So this idea of, it's not optional. Because sometimes we think there's this theological idea of justification, which means I became a Christian. I used to be a sinner, I walked the aisle, or maybe I just raised my hand, whatever you do and got baptized and said, my life is now Christ. That's a good thing. That's called being justified. What does that mean? Uh, and being made righteous, same Greek word. Again, two English words, same Greek word. What it means is you used to not be in good graces with God, and now you've been reconciled with God. Romans 5.1, since we have been made right with God, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. That's called becoming a Christian. Then we'll say, oh, and then by the way, there's an optional part of being a Christian. You can be a good one. You can actually follow the rules that God said. We call that sanctification, being made more and more like Jesus, being made more and more holy. But that's kind of like AP, uh, you know, extra credit. That's like if you want college credits, you can be a good Christian. That's not the way the New Testament talks about Christianity. You can't find anywhere that it doesn't talk about this idea of sanctification. Remember what 1 Thessalonians said? This is God's will for you, to become holy, to live this holy life. It's all part of the same thing. Uh, here's 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't live your life chasing money, fame, power, sex, whatever you used to be chasing. Don't chase the passions of your former ignorant self. But as the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is a quote from Leviticus. So the idea that God's will for you is to be set apart in identity, and consequently, your conduct is gonna become more and more like Jesus. That's what it means to be a saint. That's what being holy means. Holiness is one of God's essential characteristics, and holiness is not optional. I'm gonna to argue to you that the New Testament doesn't say you can be saved, and then you can live like Christ. Those are not two different things in the New Testament. The whole point of turning your life over to Christ inevitably implies that fast or slow, you are gonna follow Christ and you are going to be sanctified. You already are holy because God says you are and your conduct is gonna reflect that. That's what it means to be saved. Make sense? That's who you are. I really want you to think about this idea of holiness, not as a negative thing like, oh no, I gotta work real hard. No, actually you don't. The Holy Spirit inside you is going to make you holy. All you have to do is surrender real hard. You just turn your life over to Christ. He will do the work inside you, seriously. If you find yourself living a life that looks nothing like Jesus Christ, you don't have a conduct problem. You have a heart problem. Who do I really love? 
have I really surrendered my life to Christ? Then do so. And believe me, the conduct will come because you are a new creation in Christ. Well, going back to our passage then, if that is the case, he said you're called to be holy, but then he starts talking about sexual immorality. Well, needless to say that living a life of holiness, sure, living it the way God says that in anything involving sexual morality, but that's not the only thing. God wants me to be honest. He wants me to be forgiving. He wants me to work hard. He wants me to obey authority. I mean, there are all kinds of things in the New Testament. I wonder why he picked this as the first example of holiness. He's not saying this is all you need to do to be holy, but he picked on this. And I'll tell you why he picked on this. Because the Thessalonians were struggling with this. You see, they were mostly Gentiles. They had a sexual ethic radically different. Actually, they had a sexual ethic a lot like modern America. A whole lot like modern America. And this was one of their biggest questions is, can we still live the way we used to live when it came to our sexual life, our sexual morality? And what Paul is going to say, you know that God's will is for you to be holy. And you know that holiness is not just now who you are, it's also as you follow Christ, the way you conduct your life. He said, so let me answer your question. No, you can no longer live in that way. And so what was that way? So I talked to you a little bit about Aphrodite. The reason I talked to you about Aphrodite is not that there weren't a lot of gods and goddesses in Thessalonica, but she was the patron goddess of Thessalonica. So for example, if you think about Ephesus, big city, pagan city, the patron goddess of Ephesus was a goddess named Artemis. And if you read in Acts, when Paul went to Ephesus, he got in big trouble uh, with Artemis because so many people became Christians, they quit worshiping. Artemis, and oh, that just ticked them off to no end. And so they go after Paul. So she was the patron goddess. Aphrodite was the patron goddess. They had temples to all kinds of gods, but Aphrodite was the patron. She was the goddess of love and beauty, not so much bad things, and lust and passion. And so like our society, the difference between love and lust got blurred. And the idea there was love is lust. And you're gonna see that in our culture. Anytime you see the word love in our secular culture, it also entails with it the idea of lust. We have completely lost the idea that two people might love one another. Two men might love one another like David and Jonathan. Comrades in arms, just closer than a brother, and there's no lust involved. You, our culture can't even comprehend that. We've lost the idea of a deep, friendship because we put those two things together. Well, that's what they did as well. And so when you worshiped Aphrodite, how do you suppose you worshiped Aphrodite? Yeah, that part was cut out by the censors, but yes, it was sexually immoral, right? This is another picture, a little better fresco. By the way, these frescoes, that one was from 50 AD. These frescoes are painting on the wall of a house. And so these paintings are literally from the time that Paul was there. I mean, and so you would tend to see these paintings of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was a goddess to the Greeks, but she's also really important to the Romans. Okay, so I want you to follow this family tree for a minute. So if you think about the Trojans, remember the Trojans, Trojan horse, all that kind of thing? Trojans were all wiped out 
okay? Except one guy named Aeneas, one of the Trojans. And you know what he did? He fled to Rome and founded Rome. And so Rome thought they were descendants of the Trojans. And guess what? Aeneas is a descendant of Aphrodite. And so the Romans loved Aphrodite. Greeks loved Aphrodite. Hey, let's have a party. And that's pretty much what it was. They're huge temples to Aphrodite. Those are ruins. But you can get a sense looking at those ruins. That was a massive temple. And it's just like when you see a casino that's really big, what's your first thought? I hope it's not I should go in there. Your first thought is, they didn't build that because a lot of people went in there and won, right? In other words, they're making a ton of money. This cult of Aphrodite was making a ton of money. By the way, speaking of making a ton of money, and you think, how could they afford to build that? The porn industry in America, hard, hard to get really hard numbers. I mean, let's face it, the porn industry operates a little in the shadows. $13 billion of income last year. $13 billion. Sex sells. Same with Aphrodite. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of context around this of why when he talks about holiness in other letters and later in this letter, he's going to talk about a lot of other things, conduct that is consistent with holy people. And I'd like you to think about the instructions in the New Testament that way. When it says, we don't gossip, we don't lie, we don't do this, we don't do that, what's he telling you? You can take that as rules if you want. They are commands from God. But a better way to think of it is, oh, you are describing what holy people, how we live our lives. Does that make sense? He's really saying to you, I want to show you, because you didn't used to live this way. But now you do, and I want to describe to you what God's kids do. What do we do in this house? How does God want you to live? Think of it more as a very positive thing, not a negative thing. God's not sitting up there saying, I gave them a bunch of rules, but they can't do it. I'm gonna catch them and then I'm gonna smite them. That's not what's happening. What God is saying is, my Holy Spirit is gonna, over time, you surrender to me and I will make you into the image of Christ. And what do you do when you fail? Forgive me and the blood of Christ covers us. Does that make sense? You see how beautifully this works together? You are holy. You are becoming like Jesus Christ. And so the, the reason that sexual morality is the first thing he puts there, it's the biggest problem that they had. Now, I could ask you, what is the biggest problem you had? What is the biggest thing from your old life that has a hold on you? And all I want to say about it is this. As you begin to die, the, I'm quote Romans again, your old self was crucified with Christ and now you live in newness of life. But that old self wants to grab you from the grave, so to speak. And we all have certain things that we're more tugged to. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Whatever it may be. One of the reasons that Paul mentions this is this was the one that most uh, affected them because they'd grown up in their lifestyle with a completely, completely promiscuous sexual morality. And he says, this is what holiness looks like. Do this God's way and put that to death in your life. And I think the reason that he does that for them is number one, it's the biggest thing, but number two, if you want to to be separated, if you want to stand apart, 
the thing that holds on to you most closely will be the most noticeable thing in your life. So what do you think happened in Thessalonica when they said, okay, thank you, Paul. We will live the way God said to live. They don't go to the orgies anymore. They're not going to the temple of Aphrodite anymore. Seriously, they're not living like their neighbors are living. And it's really obvious. And so that's why I said, you don't have to try to be set apart. You become holy, you will diverge from the world because you're walking a new road now. You and I are walking a new road. And I do think there's something to be said for knowing, what is it in my past that most grabs at me? And surrender that to the Holy Spirit because that will be what's most noticeable to other people in your life. For some people, it's just coarse language. You know, they just are coarse people, off-color jokes, etc. And then you become a Christian and you just say, that's not consistent with my calling. I'm, I'm leaving that behind. Spirit, change my heart. Take it. People notice that. You used to go to the bars and the strip clubs and you quit doing that. People notice that. You used to be the world's biggest gossip and you don't. You're an encourager. You say kind things. People notice that. I really do think that one of the reasons and one of the things the Spirit does is convicts us, makes, in other words, brings it to our attention and then wants us to turn away from whatever it was that had the most hold on us because that is the greatest demonstration of your faith. That's gonna be the most visible, obvious sign is, you used to do that. I notice you don't do that anymore. Well, let me tell you my story. I met Jesus Christ and it made all the difference. Does that make sense? That's why I think he starts with sexual morality. That was their biggest problem. You and I might have something else and say, well, that's not my biggest temptation, but you know what? I have a problem with pride, and my old self wants to grab onto me with greed, or whatever it may be, surrender that, because that will be the greatest witness to your faith, is whatever it is that had the greatest hold on you before. This is true for all the Gentiles. I wanted to add this in uh, because I want you to realize you're gonna see that sexual morality uh, in almost all the letters. Why? Because all the Gentiles had a radically different sexual ethic. This is a, there was a problem in the early church. So as the Gentiles, who didn't grow up Jewish, became Christians, oh man, they brought all kinds of baggage with them. They, they did things a lot different, and some of it was fine but a lot of the things were not at all the way God calls us to be. And so the letters begin to instruct them in that life. Well, the problem is the Jewish Christians said, these heathen Gentiles, these guys have got to clean up their act before they become Christians. And the problem is they got too big an act to clean up. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, it was not, I had a, a list of sins that was indexed, it was so long. You know, you kind of realize, uh, and that's why a lot of people, by the way, don't want to become Christians, I'll have to change my life. Well, I guess that's one way to look at it. I felt like it was true. It's like, I want to live for something that's true. This other stuff, I don't think is true. I don't think it leads to a full flourishing life. I'm gonna follow Christ. And if I'm gonna follow Christ, then I'm gonna be all in on this. And if that's the case, I expected that God was gonna do some work in me. Do you remember in John chapter 15, God, Jesus talks about I'm the vine, you're the branches, and we're gonna prune that. I knew there'd be some snipping going on to cut off the pride and the greed and things in my life. I knew that. And it's like, I'm in, I'm all in. A little pain isn't gonna stop me. I'm in or I'm not, well, I'm all in. And so 
The Jews, though, said, yeah, but we're going to have to make them provisionals, you know, or something. And so Paul goes to the other apostles in Jerusalem, and they say, no, that's not true. When you turn your life over to Christ, you might have been a really nice person before, and you turned your life over to Christ, and you were pretty much behaving in a moral way. You weren't holy. You were good, but you weren't holy, right? But you might be good. And some of us, like me, turned our life over to Christ, go, whoa, you are a project, you know? And so the Jews were over here. They said, we already know what God's sexual morality is. We're already living that. We already don't gossip. We already aren't greedy. You see what I'm saying? But these guys, whoa, I do not know what we're going to do about it. And the apostles said, no, that's not the way this works. You're saved by God's grace through faith. You're saved by God's grace through turning, and they're on the same road you are. They're just a little bit behind you. And so this letter was written from all of the apostles out to all the Gentiles saying this, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to all our brothers and sisters who are Gentiles, meaning you become a Christian, but you were a Gentile. We've heard that some people have gone out and are troubling you, unsettling your minds, although we did not permit this. In other words, they're telling you that you aren't really a Christian until you act better. He says, but it seemed good to us that we're all of the same mind to choose some men and send them with, with Barnabas and Paul to tell you the truth. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols. In other words, don't go into those temples and sacrifice to those gods anymore. Stop that right away. Second thing, abstain from blood, leave that alone for now. And from what has been strangled, leave that alone for now. And from sexual immorality. They said, look, and this is what this letter is really saying. We love you and you're a mess. And so we would suggest to get along with the other Christians that the first thing, you don't have to become perfect because now that you're Christians, but why don't you quit that sacrificing to idols because that's idolatry and why don't you quit the sexual immorality of your old lifestyle? Do those things first. You see what I'm saying? They're just saying, look, you've got a lot of things the Spirit's gonna cut out of your life. Focus on these because those are the things that are really hardest for your brothers and sisters in Christ who used to be Jews. And so all the Gentiles had a big culture shock when they came to Christ and said, oh, Christ is holy, I'm now holy. I, don't, I can't do that anymore. I don't wanna do that anymore. The Holy Spirit changed my heart. And, but that's the reason I think you see so much about sexual immorality. It, it is God's command, but I think the reason you see it so often is all the Gentiles came from a completely different uh, sexual moral, uh, morality. And so God says up front, the spirit is gonna change your heart and you're gonna become more like me. You're gonna control your own bodies, as it says. Here, we'll back to our text. He says this, that uh, control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles. So your spirit of God will change your heart and change your desires because you love God now more than you love pornography. You love God now more than you love adultery. You love God more than you love those things. Love of God crowds out those things in our lives. So that's his first set of instructions to the Thessalonians is he tells them, my authority is I'm telling you what God said, not what Paul thinks. 
Second thing he said is, I'll tell you what God most wants from you. He wants you to be holy. And you are, because he's made you holy. Now go live in a manner that's consistent with that. He said, and I know your big question is, and your biggest challenge is gonna be, you can't go to the temple of Aphrodite anymore. That's not what we do, it's not where we go. And you're gonna have a completely different desire than you used to have. And he begins there, and he's gonna end later on with some other things. But I'd like you to think about it that way. I, if you take one thing out of this lesson, I want you to understand what it means for you to be holy. You have no idea how awesome you are, but not because of your conduct, because your God says you are that awesome. He set you apart before the creation of the world, and he's gonna change your heart to be like Jesus Christ, and you will be with him forever. You are saints. You are holy people. And he said, I just want you to cooperate with me and go conduct your lives and be consistent with who you really are right now. Well, you know what their second question was? Their second question, which we're gonna to get to in our next lesson is, what happens to you after you die? Well, you can understand why he didn't get to that. He only had a few weeks there and he had to cover some other things, but they said, hey, a couple of people here have died. Is that like bad luck for them? I mean, how does that work? Do, I mean, you know, if Christ came and you're dead, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you must be present to win. You know, you just, <laughs> you gotta be there. You gotta show your lottery ticket, you know? They said, what happens to you when you die? And Paul is gonna answer, and we're gonna talk about what happens when you die. And by the way, as he's talking about that, you know what else he talks about? The rapture. And so next week, we will do the rapture. So I'll see you guys then. <laughs>